A Ghoul's Accountant. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julie Bynum. A Ghoul's Accountant by Stephen Crane. In a wilderness, sunlight is noise. Darkness is a great, tremendous silence, accented by small and distant sound. The music of the wind in the trees is songs of loneliness, hymns of abandonment, and lays of the absence of things congenial and alive. Once a campfire lay dying in a fit of temper. A few weak flames struggled cholerically among the burned-out logs. Beneath, a mass of angry red coals glowered and hated the world. Some hemlocks sighed and sung, and a wind purred in the grass. The moon was looking through the locked branches at four imperturbable bundles of blankets which lay near the agonized campfire. The fire groaned in its last throes, but the bundles made no sign. Off in the gloomy unknown a foot fell upon a twig. The laurel leaves shivered at the stealthy passing of danger. A moment later a man crept into the spot of dim light. His skin was fiercely red, and his whiskers infinitely black. He gazed at the four passive bundles, and smiled a smile that curled his lips and showed yellow, disordered teeth. The campfire threw up two lurid arms, and quivering, expired. The voices of the trees grew hoarse and frightened. The bundles were stolid. The intruder stepped softly nearer and looked at the bundles. One was shorter than the others. He regarded it for some time motionless. The hemlocks quavered nervously, and the grass shook. The intruder slid to the short bundle and touched it. Then he smiled. The bundle partially upreared itself, and the head of a little man appeared. "'Lord!' he said. He found himself looking at the grin of a ghoul condemned to torment. "'Come!' croaked the ghoul. "'What?' said the little man. He began to feel his flesh slide to and fro on his bones as he looked into the smile. "'Come!' croaked the ghoul. "'What?' the little man whimpered. He grew gray and could not move his legs. The ghoul lifted a three-pronged pickerel spear and flashed it near the little man's throat. He saw menace on its points. He struggled heavily to his feet. He cast his eyes upon the remaining mummy-like bundles, but the ghoul confronted his face with the spear. "'Where?' shivered the little man. The ghoul turned and pointed into the darkness. His countenance shone with lurid light of triumph. "'Go!' he croaked. The little man blindly staggered in the direction indicated. The three bundles by the fire were still immovable. He tried to pierce the cloth with a glance, and opened his mouth to whoop, but the spear ever threatened his face. The bundles were left far in the rear, and the little man stumbled on alone with the ghoul. Tangled thickets tripped him, saplings buffeted him, and stones turned away from his feet. Blinded and badgered, he began to swear frenziedly. A foam drifted to his mouth, and his eyes glowed with a blue light. "'Go on!' thunderously croaked the ghoul. The little man's blood turned to salt. His eaves began to decay, and refused to do their office. He fell from gloom to gloom. At last a house was before them. Through a yellow-papered window shone an uncertain light. The ghoul conducted his prisoner to the uneven threshold, and kicked the decrepit door. It swung groaning back, and he dragged the little man into a room. 
A soiled oil lamp gave a feeble light that turned the pine-board walls and furniture a dull orange. Before a table sat a wild gray man. The ghoul threw his victim upon a chair and went and stood by the man. They regarded the little man with eyes that made wheels revolve in his soul. He cast a dazed glance about the room and saw vaguely that it was disheveled as from a terrific scuffle. Chairs lay shattered and dishes in the cupboard were ground to pieces. Destruction had been present. There were moments of silence. The ghoul and the wild gray man contemplated their victim. A throw of fear passed over him, and he sank limp in his chair. His eyes swept feverishly over the faces of his tormentors. At last the ghoul spoke. "'Well,' he said to the wild gray man. The other cleared his throat and stood up. "'Stranger,' he said suddenly, "'how much is thirty-three bushels of potatoes at sixty-four and a half a bushel?' The ghoul leaned forward to catch the reply. The wild gray man straightened his figure and listened. A fierce light shone on their faces. Their breaths came swiftly. The little man wriggled his legs in agony. Twenty-one, no, two, six, and— Quick! hissed the ghoul hoarsely. Twenty-one dollars and twenty-eight cents and a half, laboriously stuttered the little man. The ghoul gave a tremendous howl. There, Tom Jones, dern ye! he yelled. What did I tell yer? Hey! "'Hain't I right? See, didn't I tell yer that?' The wild gray man's body shook. He was delivered of a frightful roar. He sprang forward and kicked the little man out of the door. A Ghoul's Accountant by Stephen Crane when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Howard Phillips Lovecraft Ex Oblivione When the last days were upon me, and the ugly trifles of existence began to drive me to madness like the small drops of water that torturers let fall ceaselessly upon one spot of their victim's body. I loved the irradiate refuge of sleep. In my dreams I found a little of the beauty I had vainly sought in life and wandered through old gardens and enchanted woods. Once, when the wind was soft and scented, I heard the south calling, and sailed endlessly and languorously under strange stars. Once, when the gentle rain fell, I glided in a barge down a sunless stream under the earth till I reached another world of purple twilight, iridescent arbors and undying roses.
And once I walked through a golden valley that led to a shadowy groves and ruins and ended in a mighty wall green with antique vines and pierced by a little gate of bronze. Many times I walked through that valley, and longer and longer would I pause in the spectral half-light where the giant trees squirmed and twisted grotesquely, and the grey ground stretched damply from trunk to trunk, sometimes disclosing the mold-stained stones of buried temples. And always the goal of my fancies was the mighty vine-grown wall with the little gate of bronze therein. After a while, as the days of waking became less and less bearable from their greyness and sameness, I would often drift in opiate peace through the valley and the shadowy groves, and wonder how I might seize them for my eternal dwelling place, so that I need no more crawl back to a dull world stripped of interest and new colors. And as I looked upon the little gate in the mighty wall, I felt that beyond it lay a dream country from which, once it was entered, there would be no return. So each night in sleep I strove to find the hidden latch of the gate in the ivied antique wall, though it was exceedingly well hidden. And I would tell myself that the realm beyond the wall was not more lasting merely, but more lovely and radiant as well. Then. One night in the dream city of Zakarion, I found a yellowed papyrus filled with the thoughts of dream sages who dwelt of old in that city, and who were too wise ever to be born in the waking world. Therein were written many things concerning the world of dream and among them was law of a golden valley and a sacred grove with temples and a high wall pierced by a little bronze gate. When I saw this law I knew that it touched on the scenes I had haunted, and I therefore read long in the yellowed papyrus. Some of the dream sages wrote gorgeously of the wonders beyond the irrepressible gate, but others told of horror and disappointment. I knew not which to believe, yet longed more and more to cross forever into the unknown land, for doubt and secrecy are the lure of lures, and no new horror can be more terrible than the daily torture of the commonplace. So when I learned of the drug which would unlock the gate and drive me through, I resolved to take it when next I awaked. Last night I swallowed the drug and floated dreamily into the golden valley 
and the shadowy groves. And when I came this time to the antique wall, I saw that the small gate of bronze was ajar. From beyond came a glow that weirdly lit the giant twisted trees and the tops of the buried temples, and I drifted on songfully, expectant of the glories of the land from whence I should never return. But as the gate swung wider and the sorcery of the drug and the dream pushed me through, I knew that all sights and glories were at an end. For in that new realm was neither land nor sea, but only the white void of unpeopled and illimitable space. So happier than I had ever dared hope to be, I dissolved again into that native infinity of crystal oblivion from which the demon life had called me for one brief and desolate hour. End of Ex Oblivione by Howard Phillips Lovecraft This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. That's L-I-B-R-I-V-O-X dot org. Recorded by me, Glenn Hallstrom, also known as Smokestack Jones. Smokestackjones at gmail.com. You'll also find my blog at toomuchjohnson.blogspot.com. The Picture in the House by H.B. Lovecraft Searchers after horror haunt strange far places. For them are the catacombs of Tome and the carven mausolea of the nightmare countries. They climb to the moonlit towers of ruined Rhine castles and falter down black cobweb steps beneath the scattered stones of forgotten cities in Asia. The haunted wood and the desolate mountain are their shrines, and they linger around the sinister monoliths of uninhabited islands. But the true epicure of the terrible to whom a new thrill of unalterable ghastliness is the chief end and justification of existence, esteems most of all the ancient, lonely farmhouses of backwoods New England. For there the dark elements of strength, solitude, grotesqueness, and ignorance combine to form the perfection of the hideous. Most horrible of all the sights are the little unpainted wooden houses remote from traveled ways, usually squatted upon some damp grassy slope or leaning against some gigantic outcropping of rock. Two hundred years and more they have leaned or squatted there, while the vines have crawled and the trees have swelled and spread. They are almost hidden now in lawless luxuriances of green and guardian shrouds of shadow, but the small paned windows still stare shockingly as if blinking through a lethal stupor which wards off madness by dulling the memory of unutterable things. In such houses have dwelt generations of strange people whose like the world has never seen. Seized with a gloomy and fanatical belief which exiled them from their kind, their ancestors sought the wilderness for freedom. There are scions of a conquering race indeed flourished free from the restrictions of their fellows, but cowered in an appalling slavery to the dismal phantasms of their own minds. Divorced from the enlightenment of civilization, the strength of these Puritans turned into singular channels, and in their isolation, morbid self-repression, and struggle for life with relentless nature, 
there came to them dark, furtive traits from the prehistoric depths of their cold northern heritage. By necessity practical and by philosophy stern, these folks were not beautiful in their sins. Erring as all mortals must, they were forced by their rigid code to seek concealment above all else, so that they came to use less and less taste in what they concealed. Only the silent, sleepy, staring houses in the backwoods can tell all that has lain hidden since the early days, and they are not communicative, being loath to shake off the drowsiness which helps them forget. Sometimes one feels that it would be merciful to tear down these houses, for they must often dream. It was to a time-battered edifice of this description that I was driven one afternoon in November 1896 by a rain of such chilling copiousness that any shelter was preferable to exposure. I had been traveling for some time amongst the people of the Miskatonic Valley in quest of certain genealogical data, and from the remote, devious, and problematical nature of my course had deemed it convenient to employ a bicycle despite the lateness of the season. Now I found myself in an apparently abandoned road which I had chosen as the shortest cut to Arkham, overtaken by the storm at a point far from any town, and confronted with no refuge save the antique and repellent wooden building which blinked with bleared windows from between two huge leafless elms near the foot of a rocky hill. Distant though it is from the remnant of the road, the house nonetheless impressed me unfavorably the very moment I espied it. Honest, wholesome structures do not stare at travelers so slyly and hauntingly, and in my genealogical researches I had encountered legends of a century before which biased me against places of this kind. Yet the force of the elements was such as to overcome my scruples, and I did not hesitate to wheel my machine up the weedy rise to the closed door which seemed at once so suggestive and secretive. I had somehow taken it for granted that the house was abandoned, yet as I approached I was not so sure, for though the walks were indeed overgrown with weeds, they seemed to retain their nature a little too well to argue complete desertion. Therefore, instead of trying the door, I knocked, feeling as I did so a trepidation I could scarcely explain. As I waited on the rough, moxy rock which served as a doorstep, I glanced at the neighboring windows and the panes of the transom above me and noticed that, although old, rattling and almost opaque with dirt, they were not broken. The building, then, must still be inhabited, despite its isolation and general neglect. However, my rapping evoked no response, so after repeating the summons, I tried the rusty latch and found the door unfastened. Inside was a little vestibule with walls from which the plaster was falling, and through the doorway there came a faint but peculiarly hateful odor. I entered, carrying my bicycle, and closed the door behind me. Ahead rose a narrow staircase flanked by a small door, probably leading to the cellar, while to the left and right were closed doors leading to rooms on the ground floor. Leaning my cycle against the wall, I opened the door at the left and crossed into a small, low-ceilinged chamber, but dimly lighted by its two dusty windows and furnished in the barest and most primitive possible way. It appeared to be a kind of sitting-room, for it had a table and several chairs, and an immense fireplace, above which ticked an antique clock on a mantel. Books and papers were very few, and in the prevailing gloom I could not readily discern the titles. What interested me was the uniform air of archaism, as displayed in every visible detail. Most of the houses in the region I had found rich in relics of the past, but here the antiquity was curiously complete. 
for in all the room I could not discover a single article of definitely post-revolutionary date. Had the furnishings been less humble, the place would have been a collector's paradise. As I surveyed its quaint apartment, I felt an increase in that aversion first excited by the bleak exterior of the house. Just what it was that I feared or loathed, I could by no means define, but something in the whole atmosphere seemed redolent of unhallowed age, of unpleasant crudeness, and of secrets which should be forgotten. I felt disinclined to sit down, and wandered about examining the various articles which I had noticed. The first object of my curiosity was a book of medium size lying upon the table and presenting such an antiluvian aspect that I marveled at beholding it outside a museum or library. It was bound in leather with metal fittings, and it was in an excellent state of preservation, being altogether an unusual sort of volume to encounter in an abode so lonely. When I opened it to the title page, my wonder grew even greater, for it provided to be nothing less rare than Pigfetta's account of the Congo region written in Latin from the notes of the sailor Lopex and printed in Frankfurt in 1598. I had often heard of this work, with its curious illustrations by the brothers de Bry, hence for a moment forgot my uneasiness and my desire to turn the pages before me. The engravings were indeed interesting drawn wholly from imagination and careless descriptions, and represented negroes with white skins and Caucasian features. Nor would I soon have closed the book had not an exceedingly trivial circumstance upset my tired nerves and revived my sensation of disquiet. What annoyed me was the merely persistent way in which the volume tended to fall open of itself at plate twelve, which represented in gruesome detail a butcher's shop of the cannibal Aztecs. I experienced some shame at my susceptibility to do so slight a thing, but the drawing nevertheless disturbed me, especially in connection with some adjacent passages descriptive of Aztec gastronomy. I had turned to a neighboring shelf and was examining its meager literary contents, an eighteenth-century Bible of Pilgrim's Progress of like period illustrated with grotesque woodcuts and printed by the almanac maker Isaiah Thomas. The writing bulk of Cotton Mather's Magnalia Christi Americana and a few other books of evidently equal age, when my attention was aroused by the unmistakable sound of walking in the room overhead. At first astonished and startled, considering the lack of response to my recent knocking at the door, I immediately afterward concluded that the walker had just awakened from a sound sleep, and listened with less surprise as the footsteps sounded on the creaking stairs. The tread was heavy. It seemed to contain a curious quality of cautiousness, a quality which I disliked the more because the tread was heavy. When I had entered the room I had shut the door behind me. Now, after a moment of silence, during which the walker may have been inspecting my bicycle in the hall, I heard a fumbling at the latch and saw the paneled portal swing open again. In the doorway stood a person of such singular appearance that I should have exclaimed aloud but for the restraints of good breeding. Old white-bearded and ragged, my host possessed a countenance and physique which inspired equal wonder and respect. His height could not have been less than six feet, and despite a general air of age and poverty, he was stout and powerful in proportion. His face, almost hidden by a long beard which grew high on his cheeks, seemed abnormally ruddy and less wrinkled than one might expect, while over a high forehead fell a shock of white hair, little thin by the years. His blue eyes, though a trifle bloodshot, seemed inexplicably keen and burning, 
but for his horrible unkemptness, the man would have been as distinguished-looking as he was impressive. This unkemptness, however, made him offensive despite his face and figure. Of what his clothing consisted I could hardly tell, for it seemed to me no more than a mass of tatters surmounting a pair of high, heavy boots, and his lack of cleanliness surpassed description. The appearance of this man, and the instinctive fear he inspired, prepared me for something like enmity, so that I almost shuddered through surprise and a sense of uncanny incongruity, when he motioned me to a chair and addressed me in a thin, weak voice full of fawning respect and ingratiating hospitality. His speech was very curious, an extreme form of Yankee dialect. I had thought long extinct, and I studied it closely, as he sat down opposite me for conversation. Catched in the rain, be ye, he greeted. Glad ye was nigh the house and hidden the sense to come right in. I calculate I was asleep outside here, ye. Ain't as young as I used to be, and I need a powerful sight of naps nowadays. Traveling fur? I ain't seen many folks for long this road since they took off the Arkham stage. I replied that I was going to Arkham, and apologized for my rude entry into his domicile, whereupon he continued, "'Glad to see ye, young sir. New faces is scarce a count around here. I ain't got much to cheer me up these days. Guess you hail from Boston, don't you? I've never been there, but I can tell a town man when I see him. We had one for D-Stick schoolmaster in eighty-four, but he quit sudden, and no one ever heard of him since.' Here the old man lapsed into a kind of chuckle and made no explanation when I questioned him. He seemed to be in an aboundingly good humor, yet to possess those eccentricities which one might guess from his grooming. For some time he rambled on with an almost feverish geniality when it struck me to ask him how he came by so rare a book as Pigfetta's Regnum Congo. The effect of this volume had not left me, and I felt a certain hesitancy in speaking of it, but curiosity overmastered all the vague fears which I had steadily accumulated since my first glimpse of the house. To my relief, the question did not seem an awkward one, for the old man answered freely and volubly. Well, that Africa book? Captain Ebenezer Holt traded me that in 68. Him as was killed in the war. Something about the name Ebenezer Holt caused me to look up sharply. I had encountered it in my genealogical work, but not in any record since the Revolution. I wondered if my host could help me in the task at which I was laboring, and resolved to ask him about it later on. He continued. Ebenezer was on a Salem merchantman for years, and picked up a slight of queer stuff at every port. He got this in London, I guess. He used to like to buy things at the shops. I was up to his house once, on the hill, trading horses. When I see this book, I relish the pictures, so I gave it to me in a swap. It's a queer book. Here, let me get my spectacles. The old man fumbled among his rags producing a pair of dirty and amazingly antique glasses with small octagonal lenses and steel bows. Donning these, he reached for the volume on the table and turned the pages lovingly. Ebenezer could read a little of this. It is Latin, but I can't. Had two or three schoolmasters read me a bit. And Passion Clark, whom they say got drowned at the pond. Can you make anything out in it? I told him that I could, and translated for his benefit a paragraph near the beginning. If I erred, he was not scholar enough to correct me, for he seemed childishly pleased at my English version. 
His proximity was becoming rather obnoxious, yet I saw no way to escape without offending him. I was amused at the childish fondness of this ignorant old man for the pictures in a book he could not read, and wondered how much better he could read the few books in English which adorned the room. This revelation of simplicity removed much of the ill-defined apprehension I had felt, and I smiled as my host rambled on. Queer how pictures can set a body thinking. Take this in here near the front. You ever see trees like that with big leaves flopping on over and down? And them men, them can't be niggers. They do beat all, kind of like Injuns, I guess, even if they be in Africa. Some of these critters looks like monkeys, or half monkeys and half men, but I never heard of nothing like this. And here he pointed to a fabulous creature of the artist, which one might describe as a sort of dragon with the head of an alligator. But now I'll show you the best one, now over here in the middle. The old man's speech grew a trifle thicker, and his eyes assumed a brighter glow, but his fumbling hands, though seemingly clumsier than before, were entirely adequate to their mission. The book fell open almost of its own accord, as if from frequent consultation at this place, to the repellent twelfth plate, showing a butcher shop amongst the Aztec cannibals. My sense of restlessness returned, though I did not exhibit it. This especially bizarre thing was that the artist had made his Africans look like white men. The limbs and quarters hanging about the walls of the shop were ghastly, while the butcher with his axe was hideously incongruous. But my host seemed to relish the view as much as I disliked it. What do you think of this? Ain't never seen the like hereabouts, eh? When I see this, I tell Jeb Holt, that's something to stir you up and make your blood tickle. When I read the scripture about slaying, like the midnights was slew, I kind of think things, but ain't got no picture of it. Here a body can see all there is to it. I suppose tis sinful, but ain't we all born living in sin? That feller being chopped gives you quite a tickle every time I look at him. I hate to keep looking at him to see where the butcher cut off his feet. There's the head on that branch with one arm side of it and t'other arms on the side of a meat block. As the man mumbled on in his shocking ecstasy, the expression on his hairy, speckled face became indescribable but his voice sank rather than mounted. My own sensations can scarcely be recorded. All the terror I had dimly felt before rushed upon me actively and vividly, and I knew that I loathed the ancient and abhorrent creature so near me with an infinite intensity. His madness, or at least his partial perversion, seemed beyond dispute. He was almost whispering now with a huskiness more terrible than a scream, and I trembled as I listened. As I said, "'Tis queer how pictures set you thinking. Do you know, young sir, I'm right set on this in here. After I got this book off Ebb, I used to look at it a lot, especially when I'd hear Passion Clark ranting Sundays in his big wig. Once I tried something funny, here, young sir, don't get scared. All I done was to look at that picture afore I killed a sheep for market. Killing sheep was kinder more fun after looking at it. The tone of the old man sang very low, sometimes becoming so faint that his words were hardly audible. I listened to the rain, and to the rattling of the bleared small-paned windows, and marked a rumbling of approaching thunder quite unusual for the season. Once a terrific flash and peal shook the frail house to its foundations, but the whisperer never seemed to notice it. Killing sheep was kind of more fun, but do you know, it ain't quite satisfying. Queer how a craven gets a hold of you. And as you love the almighty young man, don't tell nobody. 
but I swear to God that pitcher began to make me hungry for victuals I couldn't raise her by. Here, sit still. What's ailing you? I didn't do nothing, only wondered how twould be if I did. They say meat makes blood and flesh and gives you a new life, so I wondered if twould make a man live longer. Twas more the same. But the whisperer never continued. The interruption was not produced by my fright, nor by the rapidly increasing storm amidst whose fury I was presently to open my eyes on a smoky solitude of blackened ruins. It was produced by a simple, though somewhat unusual, happening. The book lay flat between us, with the picture staring repulsively upward. As the old man whispered the words, more the same, a tiny splattering impact was heard, and something showed on the yellow paper of the upturned volume. I thought of the rain and of a leaky roof, but rain is not red. On the butcher's shop of the Aztec cannibals, a small red splattering glistened picturesquely, lending vividness to the horror of the engraving. The old man saw it, and stopped whispering even before my expression of horror made it necessary. Saw it, and glanced quickly toward the door of the room he had left an hour before. I followed his glance, and beheld just above us, on the loose plaster of the ancient ceiling, a large irregular spot of wet crimson, which seemed to spread even as I viewed it. I did not shriek or move, but merely shut my eyes. A moment later came the titanic thunderbolt of thunderbolts blasting that accursed house of unutterable secrets, and bringing the oblivion which alone saved my mind. End of Picture in the House by H. P. Lovecraft This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Paul Siegel of Maynard, Massachusetts. Rattle of Bones by Robert E. Howard Landlord, ho! The shout broke the lowering silence and reverberated through the black forest with sinister echoing. This place hath a forbidding aspect, meseemeth. Two men stood in front of the forest tavern. The building was low, long, and rambling, built of heavy logs. Its small windows were heavily barred, and the door was closed. Above the door its sinister sign showed faintly, a cleft skull. This door swung slowly open, and a bearded face peered out. The owner of the face stepped back and motioned his guests to enter, with a grudging gesture, it seemed. A candle gleamed on a table. A flame smoldered in the fireplace. "'Your names?' "'Solomon Kane,' said the taller man briefly. "'Gaston Lamont,' the other spoke curtly. "'But what is that to you?' "'Strangers are few in the black forest,' grunted the host. "'Bandits many. Sit at yonder table, and I will bring food.' The two men sat down, with the bearing of men who have travelled far. One was a tall gaunt man, clad in a featherless hat and sombre black garments, which set off the dark pallor of his forbidding face. The other was of a different type entirely, bedecked with lace and plumes, although his finery was somewhat stained from travel. He was handsome in a bold way, and his restless eyes shifted from side to side, never still an instant. The host brought wine and food to the rough-hewn table, and then stood back in the shadows like a sombre image. 
his features now receding into vagueness now luridly etched in the firelight as it leapt and flickered were masked in a beard which seemed almost animal-like in thickness a great nose curved above this beard and two small red eyes stared unblinkingly at his guests who are you suddenly asked the younger man i am the host of the cleft skull tavern sullenly replied the other his tone seemed to challenge his questioner to ask further do you have many guests larmont pursued few come twice the host grunted kane started and glanced up straight into those small red eyes as if he sought for some hidden meaning in the host's words the flaming eyes seemed to dilate then dropped sullenly before the englishman's cold stare i'm for bed said kane abruptly bringing his meal to a close i must take up my journey by daylight and i added the frenchman host show us to our chambers black shadows wavered on the wall as the two followed their silent host down a long dark hall the stocky broad body of their guide seemed to grow and expand in the light of the small candle which he carried throwing a long grim shadow behind him at a certain door he halted indicating that they were to sleep there they entered the host lit a candle with the one he carried then lurched back the way he had come in the chamber the two men glanced at each other the only furnishings of the room were a couple of bunks a chair or two and a heavy table let us see if there be any way to make fast the door said kane i like not the looks of mine host there are racks on the door and jam for a bar said gaston but no bar we might break up the table and use its pieces for a bar mused kane mon dieu said larmont you are a timorous monsieur kane scowled i like not being murdered in my sleep he answered gruffly my faith the frenchman laughed we are chance met until i overtook you on the forest road an hour before sunset we had never seen each other i have seen you somewhere before answered kane though i cannot now recall where as for the other i assume every man is an honest fellow until he shows me he is a rogue moreover i am a light sleeper and slumber with a pistol at hand the frenchman left i was wondering how monsieur could bring himself to sleep in the room with a stranger ha ha all right monsieur englishman let us go forth and take a bar from one of the other rooms taking the candle with them they went into the corridor utter silence reigned and the small candle twinkled redly and evilly in the thick darkness mine host hath neither guests nor servants muttered solomon kane a strange tavern what is the name now these german words come not easily to me the cleft skull a bloody name of faith they tried the rooms next to theirs but no bar rewarded their search at last they came to the last room at the end of the corridor they entered it was furnished like the rest except that the door was provided with a small barred opening and fastened from the outside with a heavy bolt which was secured at one end to the door jamb they raised the bolt and looked in there should be an outer window but there is not muttered king look the floor was stained darkly the walls and the one bunk were hacked in places great splinters having been torn away men have died in here said kane somberly is yonder not a bar fixed in the wall ay but tis made fast said the frenchman tugging at it the a section of the wall swung back and gaston gave a quick exclamation a small secret room was revealed and the two men bent over the grisly thing that lay upon its floor the skeleton of a man said gaston and behold how his bony leg is shackled to the floor he was imprisoned here and died nay said kane the skull is cleft 
Methinks mine host had a grim reason for the name of his hellish tavern. This man, like us, was no doubt a wanderer who fell into the fiend's hands. Likely, said Gaston, without interest. He was engaged in idly working the great iron ring from the skeleton's leg-bones. Failing in this, he drew his sword, and with an exhibition of remarkable strength, cut the chain which joined the ring on the leg to a ring set deep in the log floor. "'Why should he shackle a skeleton to the floor?' mused the Frenchman. "'Mon bleu, tis a waste of good chain.' "'Now, monsieur,' he ironically addressed the white heap of bones, "'I have freed you, and you may go where you like.' "'Have done,' Cain's voice was deep. "'No good will come of mocking the dead.' "'The dead should defend themselves,' laughed Laurent. "'Somehow I will slay the man who kills me, "'though my corpse climb up forty fathoms of ocean to do it.' Cain turned toward the outer door, closing the door of the secret room behind him. He liked not this talk which smacked of demonry and witchcraft, and he was in haste to face the host with the charge of his guilt. As he turned, with his back to the Frenchman, he felt the touch of cold steel against his neck, and knew that a pistol muzzle was pressed close beneath the base of his brain. "'Move not, monsieur,' the voice was low and silky. "'Move not, or I will scatter your few brains over the room.' The Puritan, raging inwardly, stood with his hands in the air, while Armand slipped his pistols and sword from their sheaths. "'Now you can turn,' said Gaston, stepping back. Cain bent a grim eye on the dapper fellow, who stood bareheaded now, hat in one hand, the other hand leveling his long pistol. "'Gaston the Butcher,' said the Englishman somberly. "'Fool that I was to trust a Frenchman! You range far, murderer. I remember you now, with that cursed great hat off.' I saw you in Calais some years agone. Aye, and now you will see me never again. What was that? Rats exploring yon skeleton, said Cain, watching the bandit like a hawk, waiting for a single slight wavering of that black gun muzzle. The sound was of the rattle of bones. Like enough, returned the other. Now, Monsieur Cain, I know you carry considerable money on your person. I had thought to wait until you slept and then slay you. "'But the opportunity presented itself, and I took it. "'You trick easily.' "'I had little thought that I should fear a man with whom I had broken bread,' said Cain, "'a deep timber of slow fury sounding in his voice. "'The bandit laughed cynically. "'His eyes narrowed as he began to back slowly toward the outer door. "'Cain's sinews tensed involuntarily. "'He gathered himself like a giant wolf about to launch himself in a death-leap. "'But Gaston's hand was like a rock, and the pistol never trembled.' "'We will have no death-plunges after the shot,' said Gaston. "'Stand still, monsieur. I have seen men killed by dying men, and I wish to have distance enough between us to preclude that possibility. My faith, I will shoot, you will roar and charge, but you will die before you reach me with your bare hands. And mine host will have another skeleton in his secret niche. That is, if I do not kill him myself. The fool knows me not, nor I him. Moreover—' The Frenchman was in the doorway now, sighting along the barrel. The candle, which had been stuck in a niche on the wall, shed a weird flickering light which did not extend past the doorway. And with the suddenness of death from the darkness behind Gaston's back, a broad, vague form rose up, and a gleaming blade swept down. The Frenchman went to his knees like a butchered ox, his brain spilling from his cleft skull. Above him towered the figure of the host, a wild and terrible spectacle, still holding the hanger with which he had slain the bandit. "'Ho, ho!' he roared. "'Back!' Cain had leapt forward as Gaston fell, 
but the host thrust into his very face a long pistol which he held in his left hand. Back! he repeated in a tigerish roar, and Kane retreated from the menacing weapon and the insanity in the red eyes. The Englishman stood silent, his flesh crawling as he sensed a deeper and more hideous threat than the Frenchman had offered. There was something inhuman about this man, who now swayed to and fro like some great forest beast, while his mirthless laughter boomed out again. "'Gaston the Butcher!' he shouted, kicking the corpse at his feet. "'Ho, ho! My fine brigand will hunt no more. I had heard of this fool who roamed the black forest. He wished gold, and he found death. Now your gold shall be mine, and more than gold. Vengeance!' "'I'm no foe of yours,' Cain spoke calmly. "'All men are my foes. Look, the marks on my wrists. See, the marks on my ankles. And deep in my back, the kiss of the knout!' and deep in my brain the wounds of the years of the cold, silent cells where I lay as punishment for a crime I never committed. The voice broke in a hideous, grotesque sob. Cain made no answer. This man was not the first he had seen whose brain had shattered amid the horrors of the terrible continental prisons. But I escaped, the scream rose triumphantly, and here I make war on all men. What was that? Did Cain see a flash of fear in those hideous eyes? "'My sorcerer is rattling his bones,' whispered the host, then laughed wildly. "'Dying, he swore his very bones would weave a net of death for me. "'I shackled his corpse to the floor, and now, deep in the night, "'I hear his bare skeleton clash and rattle as he seeks to be free. "'And I laugh, I laugh! Ho, ho! How he yearns to rise and stalk like old King Death "'along these dark corridors when I sleep to slay me in my bed!' "'Suddenly the insane eyes flared hideously.' You were in that secret room, you and this dead fool. Did he talk to you? Cain shuddered in spite of himself. Was it insanity, or did he actually hear the faint rattle of bones, as if the skeleton had moved slightly? Cain shrugged his shoulders. Rats will even tug at dusty bones. The host was laughing again. He sidled around Cain, keeping the Englishman always covered, and with his free hand opened the door. All was darkness within, so that Cain could not even see the glimmer of the bones on the floor. "'Old men are my foes,' mumbled the host, in the incoherent manner of the insane. "'Why should I spare any man? Who lifted a hand to my aid when I lay for years in the vile dungeons of Karlsruhe? And for a deed never proven! Something happened to my brain, then. I became as a wolf, a brother to these of the black forest, to which I fled when I escaped.' They have feasted, my brothers, on all who lay in my tavern, all except this one who now clashes his bones, this magician from Russia. Lest he come stalking back through the black shadows when night is over the world, and slay me, for who may slay the dead? I stripped his bones and shackled him. His sorcery was not powerful enough to save him from me, but all men know that a dead magician is more evil than a living one. Move not, Englishman. Your bones I shall leave in this secret room beside this one, too. The maniac was standing partly in the doorway of the secret room now, his weapon still menacing Cain. Suddenly he seemed to topple backward and vanished in the darkness, and at the same instant a vagrant gust of wind swept down the outer corridor and slammed the door shut behind him. The candle on the wall flickered and went out. Cain's groping hands, sweeping over the floor, found a pistol, and he straightened facing the door where the maniac had vanished. He stood in the utter darkness, his blood freezing, while a hideous muffled screaming came from the secret room, intermingled with the dry, grisly rattle of fleshless bones. Then silence fell. 
Kane found flint and steel and lighted the candle. Then, holding it in one hand and the pistol in the other, he opened the secret door. "'Great God!' he muttered, as cold sweat formed on his body. "'This thing is beyond all reason, yet with mine own eyes I see it. Two vows have here been kept, for Gaston the Butcher swore that even in death he would avenge his slaying, and his was the hand which set yon fleshless monster free. And he—' The host of the cleft skull lay lifeless on the floor of the secret room, his bestial face set in lines of terrible fear, and deep in his broken neck were sunk the bare finger-bones of the sorcerer's skeleton. End of Rattle of Bones by Robert E. Howard This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe Read by Zoe Early Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this, and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember, it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow. From my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore, nameless here for evermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. "'Some late visitor entreating entrance at my, my chamber door. "'This it is, and nothing more. "'Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. "'Sir,' said I, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore. "'But the fact is, I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, "'and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, "'that I scarce was sure I heard you. "'Here I opened wide the door, but darkness there, and nothing more. "'Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there, wondering, fearing, doubting, "'dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before.' But the silence was unbroken, and the darkness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore? This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore? Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a tapping, somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, Surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see then what thereat is, and this mystery explore. Let me I heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. 
open here i flung the shutter when with many a flirt and flutter in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore not the least obeisance made he not a minute stopped or stayed he but with mien of lord or lady perched above my chamber door perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door perched and sat and nothing more then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore though thy crest be shorn and shaven thou i said art sure no craven ghastly grim and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's plutonian shore quoth the raven nevermore but the raven sitting lonely on the placid bust spoke only that one word as if his soul in that one word he did outpour nothing further than he uttered not a feather than he fluttered till i scarcely more than muttered other friends have flown before on the morrow he will leave me as my hopes have flown before then the bird said nevermore startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken doubtless said i what it utters is its only stock and store caught from some unhappy master whom unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never never more but the raven still beguiling on my sad soul into smiling straight i wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door then upon the velvet sinking i betook myself to linking fancy unto fancy thinking what this ominous bird of yore what this grim ungainly gaunt and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking nevermore this i sat engaged in guessing but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core this and more i sat divining with my head at ease reclining on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er but whose velvet violet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er she shall press ah nevermore then methought the air grew denser perfumed from an unseen censer swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor wretch i cried thy god hath lent thee by these angels he hath sent thee respite respite and nepenthe from thy memories of lenore quaff o oh, quaff this kind nepenthe and forget this lost lenore quoth the raven nevermore prophet said i thing of evil prophet still if bird or devil whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore desolate yet all undaunted on this desert land enchanted on this home by horror haunted tell me truly i implore is there is there balm in gilead tell me tell me i implore quoth the raven nevermore prophet said i thing of evil prophet still of bird or devil by the heaven that bends above us by that god we both adore tell this soul with sorrow laden if within the distant aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels named lenore clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named lenore quoth the raven nevermore be that word our sign of parting bird or fiend i shrieked upstarting 
get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul hath spoken leave my loneliness unbroken quit the bust above my door take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door quoth the raven nevermore and the raven never flitting still is sitting still is sitting on the pallid bust of pallas just above my chamber door and his eyes hath all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor and my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore end of the raven by edgar allan poe this is a librivox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Soul of the Great Bell by Lefcadio Hearn The water clock marks the hour in the Da Zhong Si, in the Tower of the Great Bell. Now. The mallet is lifted to smite the lips of the metal monster. The vase ups inscribed with Buddhist texts from the sacred Fa Hua King, from the chapters of the holy Ling Yan King. Hear the great bell responding. How mighty her voice, though tongueless. Ko Ngai! All the little dragons on the high, tilted eaves of the green roofs shiver to the tips of the gilded tails under that deep wave of sound. All the porcelain gargoyles tremble on the carven perches. All the hundred little bells of the pecoders quiver with desire to speak. Kongai. All the green and gold tiles of the temple are vibrating. The wooden goldfish above them are writhing against the sky. The uplifted finger of foe shakes high over the heads of the worshippers through the blue fog of incense. Kongai! What a thunder tone was that! All the lacquered goblins on the palace cornices wriggle their fire-colored tongues. And after each huge shock, how wondrous the multiple echo and the great golden mongen at last, the sudden sibilant sobbing in the ears when the immense tongue faints away in the broken whispers of silver, as though a woman should whisper, Hiai. Even so, the great bell bath sounded every day for well nigh five hundred years. Kongai. First with stupendous clang, then with immeasurable moan of gold, then with silver murmuring of Hiai. And there is not a child in all the many coloured ways of the old Chinese city who does not know the story of the great bell, 
who cannot tell you why the great bell says Ko Ngai and Hiai. Now, this is the story of the great bell in the Da Jung Si, as the same is related in the Pi Hao To Jung, written by the learned Yu Pao Jun of the city of Guangzhou Fu. Nearly 500 years ago, the celestially august, the Son of Heaven, Yong Lo, of the illustrious or Meng dynasty, commanded the worthy official Kuang Yu that he should have a bell made of such size that the sound thereof might be heard for 100 li. And he further ordained that the voice of the bell should be strengthened with brass and deepened with gold and sweetened with silver, and that the face and the great lips of it should be graven with blessed sayings from the sacred books, and that it should be suspended in the center of the imperial capital to sound through all the many-colored ways of the city of Peking. Therefore, the worthy Mandarin Kuang Yu assembled the master molders and the renowned bellsmiths of the empire and all men of great repute and cunning in foundry work, and they measured the materials for the alloy and treated them skillfully and prepared the molds, the lives, the instruments and the monstrous melting pot for fusing the metal. And they labored exceedingly like giants, neglected only rest and sleep and the comforts of life, toiling both night and day in obedience to Kuang Yu and striving in all things to do the behest of the Son of Heaven. But when the metal had been cast and the earthen mold separated from the glowing casting, it was discovered that despite the great labor and ceaseless care, the result was void of worth, for the metals had rebelled one against the other. The gold had scorned alliance with the brass, the silver would not mingle with the molten iron. Therefore, the molds had to be once more prepared, and the fires rekindled, and the metal remelted, and all the work tediously and toilsomely repeated. The Son of Heaven heard and was angry, but spake nothing. A second time the bell was cast, and the result was even worse. Still the metals obstinately refused to blend one with the other, and there was no uniformity in the bell, and the sides of it were cracked and fissured, and the lips of it were slagged and split asunder, so that all the labor had to be repeated even a third time, to the great dismay of Kuang Yu. And when the Son of Heaven heard these things, he was angrier than before, and sent his messenger to Kuang Yu with a letter, written upon lemon-colored silk, and sealed with the seal of the dragon, containing these words. 
from the mighty Yong Lo, the sublime Tao Song, the celestial and august, whose reign is called Ming. To Kuang Yu, the Fu Yin, twice thou hast betrayed the trust we have deigned graciously to place in thee. If thou fail a third time in fulfilling our command, thy head shall be severed from thy neck. Tremble and obey. Now, Kuang Yu had a daughter of dazzling loveliness, whose name, Ko Ngai, was ever in the mouths of poets, and whose heart was even more beautiful than her face. Koai loved her father with such love that she had refused a hundred worthy suitors rather than make his home desolate by her absence. And when she had seen the awful yellow missive, sealed with the dragon seal, Sire fainted away with fear for her father's sake. And when her senses and her strength returned to her, she could not rest or sleep for thinking of her parents' danger, until she had secretly sold some of her jewels, and with the money so obtained had hastened to an astrologer, and paid him a great price to advise her by what means her father might be saved from the peril impending over him. So the astrologer made observations of the heavens, and marked the aspect of the silver stream, which we call the Milky Way, and examined the signs of the zodiac, the Huang Tao, or Yellow Road, and consulted the table of the Five Hin, or Principles of the Universe, and the mystical books of the alchemists. And after a long silence, he made answer to her, saying, Gold and brass will never meet in wedlock. Silver and iron never will embrace until the flesh of a maiden be incited in the crucible, until the blood of a virgin be mixed with the metals in the fusion. So Kongai returned home sorrowful at heart, but she kept secret all that she had heard and told no one what she had done. At last came the awful day when the third and last effort to cast the great bell was to be made, and Kong Ai, together with her waiting woman, accompanied her father to the foundry, and they took the places upon a platform overlooking the toiling of the molders and the lava of liquefied metal. All the workmen rocked the tasks in silence. There was no sound heard but the muttering of the fires, and the muttering deepened into a roar, like the roar of typhoons approaching. And the blood-red lake of metal slowly brightened like the vermilion of a sunrise, and the vermilion was transmuted into a radiant glow of gold and the gold whitened blindingly like the silver face of a full moon. Then the workers ceased to feed the raving flame, and all fixed 
threw eyes upon the eyes of Kuang Yu. And Kuang Yu prepared to give the signal to cast. But ere ever he lifted his finger, a cry caused him to turn his head, and all heard the voice of Kong Ai sounding sharply sweet as a bird's song above the great thunder of the fires. For thy sake, O my father! And even as she cried, she leaped into the white flood of metal, and the lava of the furnace roared to receive her, and spattered monstrous flakes of flame to the roof, and burst over the verge of the earthen crater, and cast up a whirling fountain of many-colored fires, and subsided quakingly with lightnings and with thunders and with mutterings. Then the father of Kongai, wild with his grief, would have leaped in after her. But that strong man held him back and kept firm grasp upon him until he had fainted away and they could bear him like one dead to his home. And the serving woman of Kongai, dizzy and speechless for pain, stood before the furnace still holding in her hands a shoe, a tiny dainty shoe with embroidery of pearls and flowers, the shoe of her beautiful mistress that was. For she had sought to grasp Kongai by the foot as she leaped, but had only been able to clutch the shoe, and the pretty shoe came off in her hand, and she continued to stare at it like one gone mad. But in spite of all these things, the command of the celestial and august had to be obeyed, and the work of the motors to be finished, hopeless as the result might be. Yet the glow of the metal seemed purer and whiter than before, and there was no sign of the beautiful body that had been entombed therein. So the ponderous casting was made, and lo, when the metal had become cool, it was found that the bell was beautiful to look upon, and perfect in form, and wonderful in color above all other bells. Nor was there any trace found of the body of Kongai, for it had been totally absorbed by the precious alloy, and blended with the well-blended brass and gold, with the intermingling of the silver and the iron. And when they sounded the bell, its tones were found to be deeper and mellower and mightier than the tones of any other bell, reaching even beyond the distance of one hundred li, like a pealing of summer thunder, and yet also like some vast voice uttering a name, a woman's name, the name of Kongai. And still, between each mighty stroke, there is a long, low moaning heard. And ever the moaning ends with the sound of sobbing and of complaining. 
as through a weeping woman should murmur, he I. And still, when the people hear that great golden moan, they keep silence. But when the sharp, sweet shuddering comes in the air, and the sobbing of he I, then, indeed, do all the Chinese mothers in all the many-colored ways of Peking whisper to their little ones, Listen, that is Kong Ai crying for her shoe. That is Kong Ai calling for her shoe. End of The Soul of the Great Bell by Lefcadio Hearn This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Story of Miminashi Hoichi by Lafcadio Hearn. Read by Mark Nelson. More than seven hundred years ago, at Danoura in the Straits of Shimonoseki, was fought the last battle of the long contest between the Heiki, or Tara clan, and the Genji, or Minamoto clan. There the Heiki perished utterly, with their women and children, and their infant emperor likewise, now remembered as Antokuteno. And that sea and shore have been haunted for seven hundred years. Elsewhere I told you about the strange crabs found there, called Heiki crabs, which have human faces on their backs, and are said to be the spirits of the Heiki warriors. But there are many strange things to be seen and heard along that coast. On dark nights thousands of ghostly fires hover about the beach, or flit above the waves, pale lights which the fishermen call onibi, or demon fires. And whenever the winds are up, a sound of great shouting comes from that sea, like a clamor of battle. In former years the Heiki were much more restless than they now are. They would rise about ships passing in the night and try to sink them, and at all times they would watch for swimmers to pull them down. It was in order to appease those dead that the Buddhist temple Amadaji was built at Akamagaseki. A cemetery also was made close by, near the beach, and within it were set up monuments inscribed with the names of the drowned emperor and of his great vassals, and Buddhist services were regularly performed there on behalf of the spirits of them. After the temple had been built and the tombs erected, the Heiki gave less trouble than before, but they continued to do queer things at intervals proving that they had not found the perfect peace. Some centuries ago there lived at Akamagaseki a blind man named Hoichi, who was famed for his skill in recitation and in playing upon the biwa. From childhood he had been trained to recite and to play, and while yet a lad he had surpassed his teachers. As a professional biwa hoshi, he became famous chiefly by his recitations of the history of the Heiki and the Ganji. And it is said that when he sang the song of the Battle of Danoura, even the goblins, Kijin, could not refrain from tears. 
At the outset of his career, Hoichi was very poor, but he found a good friend to help him. The priest of the Amadaji was fond of poetry and music, and he often invited Hoichi to the temple to play and recite. Afterwards, being much impressed by the wonderful skill of the lad, the priest proposed that Huichi should make the temple his home, and this offer was gratefully accepted. Huichi was given a room in the temple building, and in return for food and lodging he was required only to gratify the priest with a musical performance on certain evenings, when otherwise disengaged. One summer night the priest was called away to perform a Buddhist service at the house of a dead parishioner, and he went there with his acolyte, leaving Huichi alone in the temple. It was a hot night, and the blind man sought to cool himself on the veranda before his sleeping-room. The veranda overlooked a small garden in the rear of the Amadaji. There Hoichi waited for the priest's return, and tried to relieve his solitude by practicing upon his biwa. Midnight passed, and the priest did not appear. But the atmosphere was still too warm for comfort within doors, and Huichi remained outside. At last he heard steps approaching from the back gate. Somebody crossed the garden, advanced to the veranda, and halted directly in front of him. But it was not the priest. A deep voice called the blind man's name, abruptly and unceremoniously, in the manner of a samurai summoning an inferior. Weechi. Hi, answered the blind man, frightened by the menace in the voice. I am blind. I cannot know who calls. There is nothing to fear, the stranger exclaimed, speaking more gently. I am stopping near this temple, and have been sent to you with a message. My present lord, a person of exceedingly high rank, is now staying in a Kamakaseki, with many noble attendants. He wished to view the scene of the battle of Dannoura, and to-day he visited that place. Having heard of your skill in reciting the story of the battle, he now desires to hear your performance. So you will take your biwa and come with me at once to the house where the august assembly is waiting." In those times the order of a samurai was not to be lightly disobeyed. Hoichi donned his sandals, took his biwa, and went away with the stranger, who guided him deftly, but obliged him to walk very fast. The hand that guided him was iron, and the clank of the warrior's stride proved him fully armed, probably some palace guard on duty. Huichi's first alarm was over. He began to imagine himself in good luck. For, remembering the retainer's assurance about a person of exceedingly high rank, he thought that the lord who wished to hear the recitation could not be less than a daimyo of the first class. Presently the samurai halted, and Huichi became aware that they had arrived at a large gateway. And he wondered, for he could not remember any large gate in that part of the town, except the main gate of the Amadaji. "'Kaimon!' the samurai called, and there was a sound of unbarring, and the twain passed on. They traversed a space of garden, and halted again before some entrance. 
and the retainer cried in a loud voice, "'Within there! I have brought Hoichi!' Then came sounds of feet hurrying, and screens sliding, and rain-doors opening, and the voices of women in converse. By the language of the women, Hoichi knew them to be domestics in some noble household, but he could not imagine to what place he had been conducted. Little time was allowed him for conjecture. After he had been helped to mount several stone steps, upon the last of which he was told to leave his sandals, a woman's hand guided him among interminable reaches of polished planking, and round pillared angles too many to remember, and over widths amazing of matted floor, into the middle of some vast apartment. There he thought that many great people were assembled. The sound of the rustling of silk was like the sound of leaves in a forest. He heard also a great humming of voices, talking in undertones, and the speech was the speech of courts. Hoichi was told to put himself at ease, and he found a kneeling cushion ready for him. After having taken his place upon it, and tuned his instrument, the voice of a woman, whom he divined to be the rojo, or matron in charge of the female service, addressed him, saying, It is now required that the history of the Heki be recited, to the accompaniment of the biwa. Now, the entire recital would have required a time of many nights. Therefore Huichi ventured a question. As the whole of the story is not soon told, what portion is augustly desired that I now recite? The woman's voice made answer. Recite the story of the battle at Danoura, for the pity of it is the most deep. Then Hoichi lifted up his voice and chanted the chant of the fight on the bitter sea, wonderfully making his biwa to sound like the straining of oars and the rushing of ships, the whirr and hissing of arrows, the shouting and trampling of men, the crashing of steel upon helmets, the plunging of slain in the flood. And to the left and right of him, in the pauses of his playing, he could hear voices murmuring praise. How marvelous an artist! Never in our province was playing heard like this. Not in all the empire is there another singer like Hoichi. Then fresh courage came to him, and he played and sang yet better than before, and a hush of wonder deepened about him. But when at last he came to tell the fate of the fair and helpless, the piteous perishing of the women and children, and the death-leap of Ni'i no Ama, with the imperial infant in her arms, then all the listeners uttered together one long, long shuddering cry of anguish, and thereafter they wept and wailed so loudly and so wildly that the blind man was frightened by the violence and grief that he had made. For much time the sobbing and the wailing continued. But gradually the sounds of lamentation died away and again in the great stillness that followed, Huichi heard the voice of the woman whom he supposed to be the rojo. She said, Although we have been assured that you are a very skillful player upon the biwa, and without an equal in recitative, we did not know that any one could be so skillful as you have proved yourself to-night. Our Lord has been pleased to say that He intends to bestow upon you a fitting reward. But, 
he desires that you shall perform before him once every night for the next six nights, after which time he will probably make his august return journey. Tomorrow night, therefore, you are to come here at the same hour. The retainer who tonight conducted you will be sent for you. There is another matter about which I have been ordered to inform you. It is required that you shall speak to no one of your visits here during the time of our Lord's august sojourn at Akamagaseki. As he is traveling incognito, he commands that no mention of these things be made. You are now free to go back to your temple. After Huichi had duly expressed his thanks, a woman's hand conducted him to the entrance of the house, where the same retainer who had before guided him was waiting to take him home. The retainer led him to the veranda at the rear of the temple, and there bade him farewell. It was almost dawn when Huichi returned, but his absence from the temple had not been observed, as the priest, coming back at a very late hour, had supposed him asleep. During the day Huichi was able to take some rest, and he said nothing about his strange adventure. In the middle of the following night the samurai again came for him and led him to the august assembly, where he gave another recitation with the same success that had attended his previous performance. But during his second visit his absence from the temple was accidentally discovered, and after his return in the morning he was summoned to the presence of the priest, who said to him, in a tone of kindly reproach, "'We have been very anxious about you, friend Huichi. To go out, blind and alone, at so late an hour, is dangerous. Why did you go without telling us? I could have ordered a servant to accompany you. And where have you been?' Hoichi answered evasively, "'Pardon me, kind friend. I had to attend to some private business, and I could not arrange the matter at any other hour." The priest was surprised rather than pained by Hoichi's reticence. He felt it to be unnatural and suspected something wrong. He feared that the blind lad had been bewitched or deluded by some evil spirits. He did not ask any more questions but he privately instructed the men-servants of the temple to keep watch upon Huichi's movements, and to follow him in case that he should again leave the temple after dark. On the very next night Huichi was seen to leave the temple, and the servants immediately lighted their lanterns and followed after him. But it was a rainy night and very dark, and before the temple folks could get to the roadway Huichi had disappeared. Evidently he had walked very fast, a strange thing, considering his blindness, for the road was in a bad condition. The men hurried through the streets, making inquiries at every house which Huichi was accustomed to visit. But nobody could give them any news of him. At last, as they were returning to the temple by way of the shore, they were startled by the sound of a biwa, furiously played, in the cemetery of the Amadaji. Except for some ghostly fires, such as usually flitted there on dark nights, all was blackness in that direction. But the men at once hastened to the cemetery, and there, by the help of their lanterns, they discovered Huichi, sitting alone in the rain before the memorial tomb of Antokoteno, making his biwa resound, 
and loudly chanting the chant of the battle of Danoura. And behind him, and about him, and everywhere above the tombs, the fires of the dead were burning like candles. Never before had so great a host of Onibi appeared in the sight of mortal man. Huichi-san! Huichi-san! the servants cried. You are bewitched, Huichi-san! But the blind man did not seem to hear. Strenuously he made his biwa to rattle and ring and clang. More and more wildly he chanted the chant of the battle of Danoura. They caught hold of him. They shouted into his ear. Huichi-san! Huichi-san! Come home with us at once! Reprovingly he spoke to them. To interrupt me in such a manner before this august assembly will not be tolerated. Whereat, in the spite of the weirdness of the thing, the servants could not help laughing. Sure that he had been bewitched, they now seized him and pulled him up on his feet and by main force hurried him back to the temple, where he was immediately relieved of his wet clothes by order of the priest. Then the priest insisted upon a full explanation of his friend's astonishing behavior. Hoichi Long hesitated to speak, but at last, finding that his conduct had really alarmed and angered the good priest, he decided to abandon his reserve, and he related everything that had happened from the time of the first visit of the samurai. The priest said, Hoichi, my poor friend! You are now in great danger. How unfortunate that you did not tell me all this before. Your wonderful skill in music has indeed brought you into strange trouble. By this time you must be aware that you have not been visiting any house whatever, but have been passing your nights in the cemetery among the tombs of the Heki. And it was before the memorial tomb of Antokoteno that our people tonight found you sitting in the rain. All that you have been imagining was illusion, except the calling of the dead. By once obeying them, you have put yourself in their power. If you obey them again, and after what has already occurred, they will tear you in pieces. But they would have destroyed you sooner or later in any event. Now I shall not be able to remain with you tonight. I am called away to perform another service. But before I go, it will be necessary to protect your body by writing holy texts upon it. Before sundown, the priest and his acolyte stripped Hoichi. Then, with their writing brushes, they traced upon his breast and back, head and face and neck, limbs and hands and feet, even upon the soles of his feet, and upon all parts of his body, the text of the holy sutra called Hanya Shinkyo. When this had been done, the priest instructed Huichi, saying, "'Tonight, as soon as I go away, you must seat yourself on the veranda and wait. You will be called. But whatever may happen, do not answer and do not move. Say nothing and sit still, as if meditating. If you stir or make any noise, you would be torn asunder. Do not get frightened.' and do not think of calling for help, because no help could save you. If you do exactly as I tell you, the danger will pass, and you will have nothing more to fear. After dark, 
the priest and the acolyte went away, and Hoichi seated himself on the veranda according to the instructions given him. He laid his biwa on the planking beside him, and, assuming the attitude of meditation, remained quite still, taking care not to cough or to breathe audibly. For hours he stayed thus. Then, from the roadway, he heard the steps coming. They passed the gate, crossed the garden, approached the veranda, stopped directly in front of him. Oichi, the deep voice called, but the blind man held his breath and sat motionless. Oichi, grimly called the voice a second time, then a third time, savagely. Oichi. Oichi remained as still as a stone, and the voice grumbled. No answer. That won't do. Must see where the fellow is. There was a noise of heavy feet mounting upon the veranda. The feet approached deliberately, halted beside him. Then, for long minutes, during which Hoichi felt his whole body shake to the beating of his heart, there was dead silence. At last the gruff voice muttered close to him. Here is the biwa, but of the biwa player I see only two ears. So that explains why he did not answer. He had no mouth to answer with. There is nothing left of him but his ears. Now to my lord those ears I will take, in proof that the august commands have been obeyed so far as was possible. At that instant... Huichi felt his ears gripped by fingers of iron, and torn off. Great as the pain was, he gave no cry. The heavy footfalls receded along the veranda, descended into the garden, passed out to the roadway, ceased. From either side of his head the blind man felt a thick, warm trickling, but he dared not lift his hands. Before sunrise the priest came back. He hastened at once to the veranda in the rear, stepped and slipped upon something clammy, and uttered a cry of horror, for he saw, by the light of his lantern, that the clamminess was blood. But he perceived Hoichi sitting there in the attitude of meditation, with the blood still oozing from his wounds. "'My poor Huichi!' cried the startled priest. "'What is this? You have been hurt?' At the sound of his friend's voice, the blind man felt safe. He burst out sobbing and tearfully told his adventure of the night. "'Poor, poor Huichi!' the priest exclaimed. "'All my fault, my very grievous fault! Everywhere upon your body the holy texts had been written.' except upon your ears. I trusted my acolyte to do that part of the work, and it was very, very wrong of me not to have made sure that he had done it. Well, the matter cannot now be helped. We can only try to heal your hurts as soon as possible. Cheer up, friend. The danger is now well over. 
you will never again be troubled by those visitors. With the aid of a good doctor, Huichi soon recovered from his injuries. The story of his strange adventures spread far and wide, and soon made him famous. Many noble persons went to Agamagaseki to hear him recite, and large presents of money were given to him, so that he became a wealthy man. But from the time of his adventure he was known only by the appellation of Miminashi Huichi, Huichi the Earless. The End of the Story of Miminashi Huichi by Lafcadio Hearn The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. True, nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous, I have been and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease has sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken, and observe how healthily, how calmly, I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object? There was none. Passion? There was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold, I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now this is the point. You fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded, and with what caution I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh, so gently. And then... When I had made an open sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed, that no light shone out, and then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. 
It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously, oh, so cautiously, cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture's eye. And this I did for seven long nights, every night just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work, for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning, when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone, and inquiring how he had passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night did I feel the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door, little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, for the shutters were close fastened through fear of robbers. And so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it on steadily, steadily. I had my head in, and was about to open the lantern, when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening, and the old man sprang up in bed, crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour, I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed, listening, just as I have done night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief, oh no! It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. 
He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor, or it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he found them all in vain, all in vain, because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a single dim ray, like the thread of the spider, shot out the crevice, from the crevice and fell full upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness all a dull blue, with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray, as if by instinct, precisely upon the damned spot. And have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the sense? Now, I say, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury, as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. <clears throat> but even yet, I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the, man, the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker, louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous. So I am. And now, at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet for some minutes longer I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst. And now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, only once. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. 
This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If you still think me mad, you will think me so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the boards so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot whatsoever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught all, ha <laughs> ha! When I had made the end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men, who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as offers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputated to search the premises. I smiled. For what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues, while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears. But still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness, <clears throat> until at length I found the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice, yet the sound increased. What could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. 
I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh, God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore, I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards, but the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, oh no, they heard, they suspected, they knew, they were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now again, hark, louder, 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 louder. Villains, I shrieked, dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here. It is the beating of his hideous heart. End The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Spider by Hans Heinz Ewers when the student of medicine Richard Brackenmont decided to move into room number seven of the small Hotel Stevens, Rue Alfred Stevens, Paris six, three persons had already hanged themselves from the crossbar of the window in that room on successive Fridays. The first was a Swiss travelling salesman. They found his corpse on Saturday evening. The doctor determined that the death must have occurred between five and six o'clock on Friday afternoon. The corpse hung on a strong hook that had been driven into the window's crossbar to serve as a hanger for articles of clothing. The window was closed, and the dead man had used the curtain cord as a noose. Since the window was very low, he hung with his knees practically touching the floor, a sign of the great discipline the suicide must have exercised in carrying out his design. Later, it was learned that he was a married man, a father. He had been a man of continually happy disposition, a man who had achieved a secure place in life. There was not one written word to be found that would have shed light on his suicide, not even a will. Furthermore, none of his acquaintances could recall hearing anything at all from him that would have permitted anyone to predict his end. The second case was not much different. The artist, Karl Kraus, a high-wire cyclist in the nearby Medrano Circus, moved into room number seven two days later. When he did not show up at Friday's performance, the director sent an employee to the hotel. There he found Kraus in the unlocked room hanging from the window crossbar in circumstances exactly like those of the previous suicide. This death was as perplexing as the first. Kraus was popular. He earned a very high salary and had appeared to enjoy life at its fullest. Once again there was no suicide note, no sinister hints. Kraus's sole survivor was his mother, to whom the son had regularly sent three hundred marks on the first of the month. For Madame Dubonnet, the owner of the small, cheap guest-house whose clientele was composed almost completely of employees in a nearby Montmartre vaudeville theatre, this second curious death in the same room 
had very unpleasant consequences. Already several of her guests had moved out, and other regular clients had not come back. She appealed for help to her personal friend, the inspector of police of the Ninth Precinct, who assured her that he would do everything in his power to help her. He pushed zealously ahead not only with the investigation into the grounds of the suicides of the two guests, but he also placed an officer in the mysterious room. This man, Charles Maria Chaumier, actually volunteered for the task. Chaumier was an old Marsouin, a marine sergeant with eleven years of service who had lain so many nights at posts in Tonkin and Anam and had greeted so many stealthily creeping river pirates with a shot from his rifle that he seemed ideally suited to encounter the ghost that everyone on Rue Alfred Stevens was talking about. From then on, each morning and each evening, Chaumier paid a brief visit to the police station to make his report, which, for the first few days, consisted only of his statement that he had not noticed anything unusual. On Wednesday evening, however, he hinted that he had found a clue. Pressed to say more, he asked to be allowed more time before making any comment, since he was not sure that what he had discovered had any relationship to the two deaths, and he was afraid he might say something that would make him look foolish. On Thursday, his behavior seemed a bit uncertain, but his mood was noticeably more serious. Still, he had nothing to report. On Friday morning, he came in very excited and spoke, half humorously, half seriously, of the strangely attractive power that his window had. He would not elaborate this notion and said that, in any case, it had nothing to do with the suicides, and that it would be ridiculous of him to say more. When, on that same Friday, he failed to make his regular evening report, someone went to his room and found him hanging from the crossbar of the window. All the circumstances, down to the minutest detail, were the same here as in the previous cases. Chaumier's legs dragged along the ground. The curtain cord had been used for a noose. The window was closed. The door to the room had not been locked, and the death had occurred at six o'clock. The dead man's mouth was wide open, and his tongue protruded from it. Chaumier's death, the third in as many weeks in room number seven, had the following consequences. All the guests, with the exception of a German high school teacher in room number sixteen, moved out. The teacher took advantage of the occasion to have his rent reduced by a third. The next day, Mary Garden, the famous opera comique singer, drove up to the Hotel Stevens and paid two hundred francs for the red curtain cord, saying it would bring her luck. The story, small consolation for Madame du Bonnet, got into the papers. If these events had occurred in summer, in July or August, Madame du Bonnet would have secured three times that price for her cord. But as it was in the middle of a troubled year, with elections, disorders in the Balkans, bank crashes in New York, the visit of the King and Queen of England, the result was that the affair Rue Alfred Stevens was talked of less than it deserved to be. As for the newspaper accounts, they were brief, being essentially the police reports, word for word. These reports were all that Richard Bracamont, the medical student, knew of the matter. There was one detail about which he knew nothing because neither the police inspector nor any of the eyewitnesses had mentioned it to the press. It was only later, after what happened to the medical student, that anyone remembered that when the police removed Sergeant Charles Maria Chaumier's body from the window crossbar, a large black spider crawled from the dead man's open mouth. A hotel porter flicked it away, exclaiming, Ugh! Another of those damned creatures! When in later investigations, which concerned themselves mostly with Bracamont, the servant was interrogated, he said that he had seen a similar spider crawling on the Swiss traveling salesman's shoulder when his body was removed from the window crossbar. But Richard Bracamont knew nothing of all this. It was more than two weeks after the last suicide that Bracamont moved into the room. It was a Sunday. Bracamont conscientiously recorded everything that happened to him in his journal. 
That journal now follows. Monday, February 28th. I moved in yesterday evening. I unpacked my two wicker suitcases and straightened the room a little. Then I went to bed. I slept so soundly that it was nine o'clock the next morning before a knock at my door woke me. It was my hostess bringing me breakfast herself. One could read her concern for me in the eggs, the bacon, and the superb café au lait she brought me. I washed and dressed, then smoked a pipe as I watched the servant make up the room. So here I am. I know well that the situation may prove dangerous, but I think I may be just the one to solve the problem. If, once upon a time, Paris was worth a mass, conquest comes at dearer rate these days, it is well worth my life pour un si bel anjou. I have at least one chance to win, and I mean to risk it. As it is, I'm not the only one who's had this notion. Twenty-seven people have tried for access to the room. Some went to the police, some went directly to the hotel owner. There were even three women among the candidates. There was plenty of competition. No doubt the others are poor devils like me. And yet it was I who was chosen. Why? Because I was the only one who hinted that I had some plan, or the semblance of a plan. Naturally I was bluffing. These journal entries are intended for the police. I must say that it amuses me to tell those gentlemen how neatly I fooled them. If the inspector has any sense, he'll say, Hmm, this Bracamont is just the man we need. In any case, it doesn't matter what he'll say. The point is, I'm here now, and I take it as a good sign that I've begun my task by bamboozling the police. I had gone first to Madame Dubonnet, and it was she who sent me to the police. They put me off for a whole week as they put off my rivals as well. Most of them gave up in disgust having something better to do than hang around the musty squad room. The inspector was beginning to get irritated at my tenacity. At last he told me I was wasting my time, that the police had no use for bungling amateurs. Ah, if you only had a plan, then... On the spot I announced that I had such a plan, though naturally I had no such thing. Still I hinted that my plan was brilliant but dangerous, that it might lead to the same end as that which had overtaken the police officer, Chaumier. But I promised to describe it to him if he would give me his word that he would personally put it into effect. He made excuses claiming he was too busy, but when he asked me to give him at least a hint of my plan, I saw that I had piqued his interest. I rattled off some nonsense made up of whole cloth. God alone knows where it all came from. I told him that six o'clock of a Friday is an occult hour. It is the last hour of the Jewish week, the hour when Christ disappeared from his tomb and descended into hell. That he would do well to remember that the three suicides had taken place at approximately that hour. That was all I could tell him just then, I said, but I pointed him to the revelations of St. John. The inspector assumed the look of a man who understood all that I had been saying, and then he asked me to come back that evening. I returned precisely on time, and noted a copy of the New Testament on the inspector's desk. I had, in the meantime, been at the revelations myself, without ever having understood a syllable. Perhaps the inspector was cleverer than I. Very politely, nay, deferentially, he let me know that, despite my extremely vague intimations, he believed he grasped my line of thought, and was ready to expedite my plan in every way. And here I must acknowledge that he has indeed been tremendously helpful. It was he who made the arrangement with the owner that I was to have anything I needed so long as I stayed in the room. The inspector gave me a pistol and a police whistle, and he ordered officers on the beat to pass through the Rue Alfred Stevens as often as possible, and to watch my window for any signal. 
Most important of all, he had a desk telephone installed which connects directly with the police station. Since the station is only four minutes away, I see no reason to be afraid. Wednesday, March 1st. Nothing has happened. Not yesterday. Not today. Madame de Bonnet brought a new curtain cord from another room. The rooms are mostly empty, of course. Madame de Bonnet takes every opportunity to visit me, and each time she brings something with her. I have asked her to tell me again everything that happened here. But I have learned nothing new. She has her own opinion of the suicides. Her view is that the music hall artist, Krauss, killed himself because of an unhappy love affair. During the last year that Krauss lived in the hotel, a young woman had made frequent visits to him. These visits had stopped just before his death. As for the Swiss gentleman, Madame de Bonnet confessed herself baffled. On the other hand, the death of the policeman was easy to explain. He had killed himself just to annoy her. These are sad enough explanations, to be sure. But I let her babble on to take the edge off my boredom. Thursday, March 3rd. Still nothing. The inspector calls twice a day. Each time I tell him that all is well. Apparently these words do not reassure him. I have taken out my medical books and I study, so that my self-imposed confinement will have some purpose. Friday, March 4th. I ate uncommonly well at noon. The landlady brought me half a bottle of champagne. It seemed a great meal for a condemned man. Madame Dubonnet looked at me as if I were already three-quarters dead. As she was leaving, she begged me tearfully to come with her, fearing no doubt that I would hang myself, just to annoy her. I studied the curtain cord once again. Would I hang myself with it? Certainly I felt little desire to. The cord is stiff and rough, not the sort of cord one makes a noose of. One would need to be truly determined before one could imitate the others. I am seated now at my table. At my left, the telephone. At my right, the revolver. I'm not frightened, but I am curious. Six o'clock, the same evening. Nothing has happened. I was about to add, unfortunately. The fatal hour has come and has gone like any six o'clock on any evening. I won't hide the fact that I occasionally felt a certain impulse to go to the window, but for a quite different reason than one might imagine. The inspector called me at least ten times between five and six o'clock. He was as impatient as I was. Madame Dubonnet, on the other hand, is happy. A week has passed without someone in number seven hanging himself. Marvelous. Monday, March 7th. I have a growing conviction that I will learn nothing that the previous suicides are related to the circumstances surrounding the lives of the three men. I have asked the inspector to investigate the cases further, convinced that the someone will find their motivations. As for me, I hope to stay here as long as possible. I may not conquer Paris here, but I live very well, and am fattening up nicely. I am also studying hard, and I am making real progress. There is another reason, too, that keeps me here. Wednesday, March 9th. So... I have taken one step more. Claramonda. I haven't yet said anything about Claramonda. It is she who is my third reason for staying here. She is also the reason I was tempted to go to the window during the fateful hour last Friday, but of course not to hang myself. Claramonda. Why do I call her that? I have no idea what her name is, but it ought to be Claramonda. When I finally ask her name, I'm sure it will turn out to be Claramonda. I noticed her almost at once, in the very first days. She lives across the narrow street, and her window looks right into mine. 
She sits there, behind her curtains. I ought to say that she noticed me before I saw her, and that she was obviously interested in me. And no wonder. The whole neighborhood knows I am here, and why. Madame Dubonnet has seen to that. I am not of a particularly amorous disposition. In fact, my relations with women have been rather meager. When one comes from Verdun to Paris to study medicine, and has hardly money enough for three meals a day, one has something else to think about besides love. I am then not very experienced with women, and I may have begun my adventure with her stupidly. Never mind, it's exciting just the same. At first, the idea of establishing some relationship with her simply did not occur to me. It was only that, since I was here to make observations, and since there was nothing in the room to observe, I thought I might as well observe my neighbor, openly, professionally. Anyhow, one can't sit all day long just reading. Claramonda, I have concluded, lives alone in the small flat across the way. The flat has three windows, but she sits only before the window that looks into mine. She sits there, spinning an old-fashioned spindle, such as my grandmother inherited from a great-aunt. I had no idea anyone still used such spindles. Claramonda's spindle is a lovely object. It appears to be made of ivory, and the thread she spins is of exceptional fineness. She works all day behind her curtains and stops spinning only as the sun goes down. Since darkness comes abruptly here in this narrow street, and in this season of fogs, Claramonda disappears from her place at five o'clock each evening. I have never seen a light in her flat. What does Claramonda look like? I'm not quite sure. Her hair is black and wavy, her face pale. Her nose is short and finely shaped with delicate nostrils that seem to quiver. Her lips, too, are pale, and when she smiles it seems that her small teeth are as keen as those of some beast of prey. Her eyelashes are long and dark, and her huge dark eyes have an intense glow. I guess all these details more than I know them. It is hard to see clearly through the curtains. Something else. She always wears a black dress embroidered with a lilac motif, and black gloves, no doubt to protect her hands from the effects of her work. It is a curious sight, her delicate hands moving perpetually, swiftly grasping the thread, pulling it, releasing it, taking it up again, as if one were watching the indefatigable motions of an insect. Our relationship? For the moment, still very superficial, though it feels deeper. It began with a sudden exchange of glances in which each of us noted the other. I must have pleased her because one day she studied me a while longer, then smiled tentatively. Naturally I smiled back. In this fashion two days went by, each of us smiling more frequently with the passage of time. Yet something kept me from greeting her directly. Until today. This afternoon I did it, and Claramonda returned my greeting. It was done subtly enough to be sure. But I saw her nod. Thursday, March 10th. Yesterday I sat for a long time over my books, though I can't truthfully say that I studied much. I built castles in the air and dreamed of Claramonda. I slept fitfully. This morning, when I approached my window, Claramonda was already in her place. I waved, and she nodded back. She laughed and studied me for a long time. I tried to read, but I felt much too uneasy. Instead, I sat down at my window and gazed at Claramonda. She, too, had laid her work aside. Her hands were folded in her lap. I drew my curtain wider with the curtain cord so that I might see better. At the same moment Claramonda did the same with the curtains at her window. We exchanged smiles. We must have spent a full hour gazing at each other. Finally she took up her spinning. Saturday, March 12th. The days pass. I eat and drink. I sit at the desk. I light my pipe. 
I look down at my book, but I don't read a word, though I try again and again. Then I go to the window where I wave to Claramonda. She nods. We smile. We stare at each other for hours. Yesterday afternoon at six o'clock I grew anxious. The twilight came early, bringing with it something like anguish. I sat at my desk. I waited until I was invaded by an irresistible need to go to the window, not to hang myself, but just to see Claramonda. I sprang up and stood beside the curtain where it seemed to me I had never been able to see so clearly, though it was already dark. Claramonda was spinning, but her eyes looked into mine. I felt myself strangely contented, even as I experienced a light sensation of fear. The telephone rang. It was the inspector tearing me out of my trance with his idiotic questions. I was furious. This morning the inspector and Madame Dubonnet visited me. She's enchanted with how things are going. I have now lived for two weeks in room number seven. The inspector, however, does not feel he is getting results. I hinted mysteriously that I was on the trail of something most unusual. The jackass took me at my word and fulfilled my dearest wish. I've been allowed to stay in the room for another week. God knows it isn't Madame Dubonnet's cooking or the wine cellar that keeps me here. How quickly one can be sated with such things. No, I want to stay because of the window Madame Dubonnet fears and hates, the beloved window that shows me Claramonda. I have stared out of my window, trying to discover whether she ever leaves her room, but I've never seen her set foot on the street. As for me, I have a large, comfortable armchair and a green shade over the lamp, whose glow envelops me in warmth. The inspector has left me with a huge packet of fine tobacco, and yet I cannot work. I read two or three pages only to discover that I haven't understood a word. My eyes see the letters, but my brain refuses to make any sense of them. Absurd! As if my brain were posted, no trespassing. It is as if there were no room in my head for any other thought than the one. Claramonda. I push my books away. I lean back deeply into my chair. I dream. Sunday, March 13th. This morning I watched a tiny drama while the servant was tidying my room. I was strolling in the corridor when I paused before a small window in which a large garden spider had her web. Madame de Bonnet will not have it removed because she believes spiders bring luck and she's had enough misfortunes in her house lately. Today I saw a much smaller spider, a male, moving across the strong threads toward the middle of the web, but when his movements alerted the female he drew back shyly to the edge of the web from which he made a second attempt to cross it. Finally, the female in the middle appeared attentive to his wooing, and stopped moving. The male tugged at a strand gently, then more strongly till the whole web shook. The female stayed motionless. The male moved quickly forward, and the female received him quietly, calmly, giving herself over completely to his embraces. For a long minute they hung together, motionless, at the center of the huge web. Then I saw the male slowly extricating himself, one leg over the other. It was as if he wanted tactfully to leave his companion alone in the dream of love. But as he started away, the female, overwhelmed by a wild life, was after him, hunting him ruthlessly. The male let himself drop from a thread. The female followed, and for a while the lovers hung there, imitating a piece of art. Then they fell to the window-sill, where the male, summoning all his strength, tried again to escape. Too late. The female already had him in her powerful grip, and was carrying him back to the center of the web. There, the place that had just served as the couch for their lascivious embraces, took on quite another aspect. The lover wriggled, trying to escape from the female's wild embrace, but she was too much for him. It was not long before she had wrapped him completely in her threat, and he was helpless. 
Then she dug her sharp pincers into his body and sucked full draughts of her young lover's blood. Finally, she detached herself from the pitiful and unrecognizable shell of his body and threw it out of her web. So that is what love is like among these creatures. Well for me that I am not a spider. Monday, March 14th. I don't look at my books any longer. I spend my days at the window. When it is dark, Claramonda is no longer there, but if I close my eyes, I continue to see her. This journal has become something other than I intended. I've spoken to Madame Dubonnet about the inspector, about spiders, and about Claramonda, but I've said nothing about the discoveries I undertook to make. It can't be helped. Tuesday, March 15th. We have invented a strange game, Claramonda and I. We play it all day long. I greet her, then she greets me. Then I tap my fingers on the window panes. The moment she sees me doing that, she too begins tapping. I wave to her, she waves back. I move my lips as if speaking to her, she does the same. I run my hand through my sleep-disheveled hair, and instantly her hand is at her forehead. It is a child's game, and we both laugh over it. Actually, she doesn't laugh, she only smiles a gently contained smile. And I smile back in the same way. The game is not as trivial as it seems. It's not as if we were grossly imitating each other. That would weary us both. Rather, we are communicating with each other. Sometimes telepathically, it would seem, since Claramonda follows my movements instantaneously, almost before she has had time to see them. I find myself inventing new movements, or new combinations of movements, but each time she repeats them with disconcerting speed. Sometimes I change the order of the movements to surprise her, making a whole series of gestures as rapidly as possible. Or I leave out some motions and weave in others, the way children play Simon Says. What is amazing is that Claramonda never once makes a mistake, no matter how quickly I change gestures. That's how I spend my days, but never for a moment do I feel that I'm killing time. It seems, on the contrary, that never in my life have I been better occupied. Wednesday, March 16th. Isn't it strange that it hasn't occurred to me to put my relationship with Claramonda on a more serious basis than these endless games? Last night I thought about this. I can, of course, put on my hat and coat, walk down two flights of stairs, take five steps across the street, and mount two flights to her door, which is marked with a small sign that says Claramonda. Claramonda what? I don't know. Something. Then I can knock and... Up to this point I imagine everything very clearly, but I cannot see what would happen next. I know that the door opens, but then I stand before it looking into a dark void. Claramonda doesn't come. Nothing comes. Nothing is there. Only the black, impenetrable dark. Sometimes it seems to me that there can be no other Claramonda than the one I see in the window, the one who plays gesture games with me. I cannot imagine a Claramonda wearing a hat or a dress other than her black dress with the lilac motif. Nor can I imagine a Claramonda without black gloves. The very notion that I might encounter Claramonda somewhere in the streets or in a restaurant eating, drinking, or chatting is so improbable that it makes me laugh. Sometimes I ask myself whether I love her. It's impossible to say since I have never loved before. However, if the feeling that I have for Claramonda is really love, then love is something entirely different from anything I have seen among my friends or read about in novels. It is hard for me to be sure of my feelings, and harder still to think of anything that doesn't relate to Claramonda or, what is more important, to our game. Undeniably it is our game that concerns me, nothing else, 
and this is what I understand least of all. There is no doubt that I am drawn to Claramonda, but with this attraction there is mingled another feeling, fear. No, that's not it either. Say rather a vague apprehension in the presence of the unknown. And this anxiety has a strangely voluptuous quality, so that I am at the same time drawn to her, even as I am repelled by her. It is as if I were moving in giant circles around her, sometimes coming close, sometimes retreating, back and forth, back and forth. Once I am sure of it, it will happen, and I will join her. Claramonda sits at her window and spins her slender, eternally fine thread, making a strange cloth whose purpose I do not understand. I am amazed that she is able to keep from tangling her delicate thread. Hers is surely a remarkable design, containing mythical beasts and strange masks. Thursday, March 17th. I am curiously excited. I don't talk to people any more. I barely say hello. To Madame du Bonnet or to the servant. I hardly give myself time to eat. All I can do is sit at the window and play the game with Claramonda. It is an enthralling game. Overwhelming. I have the feeling something will happen tomorrow. Friday, March 18th. Yes, yes, something will happen today. I tell myself as loudly as I can that that's why I am here, and yet, horribly enough, I am afraid. In the fear that the same thing is going to happen to me as happened to my predecessors, there is strangely mingled another fear, a terror of Claramonda. And I cannot separate the two fears. I am frightened. I want to scream. Six o'clock, evening. I have my hat and coat on, just a couple of words. At five o'clock I was at the end of my strength. I'm perfectly aware now that there is a relationship between my despair and the sixth hour that was so significant in the previous weeks. I no longer laugh at the trick I played in the inspector. I was sitting at the window, trying with all my might to stay in my chair, but the window kept drawing me. I had to resume the game with Claramonda, and yet the window horrified me. I saw the others hanging there, the Swiss traveling salesman fat, with a thick neck and gray stubbly beard, the thin artist, and the powerful police sergeant. I saw them one after another, hanging from the same hook, their mouths open, their tongues sticking out, and then I saw myself among them. Oh, this unspeakable fear! It was clear to me that it was provoked as much by Claramonda as by the crossbar and the horrible hook. May she pardon me, but it is the truth. In my terror I keep seeing the three men hanging there, their legs dragging on the floor. And yet, the fact is I had not felt the slightest desire to hang myself, nor was I afraid that I would want to do so. No, it was the window I feared, and Claramonda. I was sure that something horrid was going to happen. Then I was overwhelmed by the need to go to the window, to stand before it. I had to... The telephone rang. I picked up the receiver, and before I could hear a word, I screamed, Come! Come at once! It was as if my shrill cry had in that instant dissipated the shadows from my soul. I grew calm. I wiped the sweat from my forehead. I drank a glass of water. Then I considered what I should say to the inspector when he arrived. Finally, I went to the window. I waved and smiled, and Claramonda, too, waved and smiled. Five minutes later, the inspector was here. I told him that I was getting to the bottom of the matter, but I begged him not to question me just then, that very soon I would be in a position to make important revelations. Strangely enough, though I was lying to him, 
I myself had the feeling that I was telling the truth. Even now, against my will, I have that same conviction. The inspector could not help noticing my agitated state of mind, especially since I apologized for my anguished cry over the phone. Naturally, I tried to explain it to him, and yet I could not find a single reason to give for it. He said affectionately that there was no need ever to apologize to him, that he was always at my disposal. That was his duty. It was better that he should come a dozen times to no effect, rather than fail to be here when he was needed. He invited me to go out with him for the evening. It would be a distraction for me. It would do me good not to be alone for a while. I accepted the invitation, though I was very reluctant to leave the room. Saturday, March 19th. We went to the Gaiety Rochechouart, Le Cigal, and La Lune Russe. The inspector was right. It was good for me to get out and breathe the fresh air. At first I had an uncomfortable feeling, as if I were doing something wrong, as if I were a deserter who had turned his back on the flag. But that soon went away. We drank a lot, laughed and chatted. This morning, when I went to my window, Claramonda gave me what I thought was a look of reproach, though I may only have imagined it. How could she have known what, that I had gone out last night? In any case... The look lasted only for an instant. Then she smiled again. We played the game all day long. Sunday, March 20th. Only one thing to record. We played the game. Monday, March 21st. We played the game all day long. Tuesday, March 22nd. Yes, the game. We played it again and nothing else. Nothing at all. Sometimes I wonder what's happening to me. What is it I want? Where is this all leading? I know the answer. There is nothing else I want except what is happening. It is what I want, what I long for, this only. Claramonda and I have spoken with each other in the course of the last few days, but very briefly, scarcely a word. Sometimes we moved our lips, but more often we just looked at each other with deep understanding. I was right about Claramonda's reproachful look because I went out with the inspector last Friday. I asked her to forgive me. I said it was stupid of me and spiteful to have gone. She forgave me and I promised never to leave the window again. We kissed, pressing our lips against each of our window panes. Wednesday, March 23rd. I now know that I love Claramonda, that she has entered into every fiber of my being. Maybe that the loves of other men are different, but does there exist one head, one ear? one hand that is exactly like the hundreds of millions of others? There are always differences, and it must be so with love. My love is strange, I know that, but is it any less lovely because of that? Besides, my love makes me happy. If only I were not so frightened. Sometimes my terror slumbers, and I forget it for a few moments, then it wakes and does not leave me. The fear is like a poor mouse trying to escape the grip of a powerful serpent. Just wait a bit, poor sad terror. Very soon the serpent, love, will devour you. Thursday, March 24th. I have made a discovery. I don't play with Claramonda. She plays with me. Last night, thinking as always about our game, I wrote down five new and intricate gesture patterns with which I intended to surprise Claramonda today. I gave each gesture a number, then I practiced the series so I could do the motions as quickly as possible forward or backward, or sometimes only the even-numbered ones, sometimes the odd, or the first and the last of the five patterns. It was tiring work, but it made me happy and seemed to bring Claramonda closer to me. I practiced for hours until I got all the motions down pat, like clockwork.
This morning I went to the window. Claramonda and I greeted each other. Then our game began. Back and forth. It was incredible how quickly she understood what was to be done, how she kept pace with me. There was a knock at the door. It was the servant bringing me my shoes. I took them. On my way back to the window my eye chanced to fall on the slip of paper on which I had noted my gesture patterns. It was then that I understood. In the game just finished I had not made use of a single one of my patterns. I reeled back and had to hold on to the chair to keep from falling. It was unbelievable. I read the paper again, and again it was still true. I had gone through a long series of gestures at the window, and not one of the patterns had been mine. I had the feeling once more that I was standing before Claramunda's wide-open door, through which, though I stared, I could see nothing but a dark void. I knew, too, that if I chose to turn from that door now, I might be saved, and that I still had the power to leave, and yet I did not leave, because I felt myself at the very edge of the mystery, as if I were holding the secret in my hands. Paris! You will conquer Paris, I thought. And in that instant Paris was more powerful than Claramunda. I don't think about that any more. Now I feel only love, love and delicious terror. Still, the moment itself endowed me with strength. I read my notes again, engraving the gestures on my mind. Then I went back to the window, only to become aware that there was not one of my patterns that I wanted to use. Standing there, it occurred to me to rub the side of my nose. Instead, I found myself pressing my lips to the window pane. I tried to drum my fingers on the window sill. Instead, I brushed my fingers through my hair. And so I understood that it was not that Claramonda did what I did. Rather, my gestures followed her lead, and with such lightning rapidity that we seemed to be moving simultaneously. I, who had been so proud because I thought I'd been influencing her, I was in fact being influenced by her. Her influence so gentle, so delightful. I have tried another experiment. I clenched my hands and put them in my pockets, firmly intending not to move them one bit. Claramonda raised her hand and, smiling at me, made a scolding gesture with her finger. I did not budge, yet I could feel how my right hand wished to leave my pocket. I shoved my fingers against the lining, but against my will my hand left the pocket. My arm rose into the air. In my turn I made a scolding gesture with my finger and smiled. It seemed to me that it was not I who was doing all this. It was a stranger whom I was watching. But, of course, I was mistaken. It was I making the gesture, and the person watching me was the stranger. That very same stranger who, not long ago, was so sure that he was on the edge of a great discovery. In any case, it was not I. Of what use to me is this discovery? I am here to do Claramunda's will, Claramunda, whom I love with an anguished heart. Friday, March 25th. I have cut the telephone cord. I have no wish to be continually disturbed by the idiotic inspector just as the mysterious hour arrives. God, why did I write that? Not a word of it is true. It is as if someone else were directing my pen. But I want to, want to, to write the truth here though it is costing me great effort, but I want to, once more, do what I want. I have cut the telephone cord. Ah, because I had to. There it is, had to. We stood at our windows this morning and played the game, which is now different from what it was yesterday. Claramunda makes a movement, and I resist it for as long as I can. Then I give in and do what she wants without further struggle. 
I can hardly express what a joy it is to be so conquered, to surrender entirely to her will. We played. All at once she stood up and walked back into her room, where I could not see her. She was so engulfed by the dark. Then she came back with the desk telephone like mine in her hands. She smiled and set the telephone on the window sill. after which she took a knife and cut the cord. Then I carried my telephone to the window where I cut the cord. After that, I returned my phone to its place. That's how it happened. I sat at my desk where I have been drinking tea the servant brought me. He has come for the empty teapot. I ask him for the time since my watch isn't running properly. He says it is 5.15. 5.15. I know that if I look out of my window, Claramunda will be there making a gesture that I will have to imitate. I will look just the same. Claramunda is there, smiling. If only I could turn my eyes away from hers. Now she parts the curtain. She takes the cord. It is red, just like the cord in my window. She ties a noose and hangs the cord on the hook in the window crossbar. She sits down and smiles. No. Fear is no longer what I feel. Rather, it is a sort of oppressive terror which I would not want to avoid for anything in the world. Its grip is irresistible, profoundly cruel, and voluptuous in its attraction. I could go to the window and do what she wants me to do, but I wait, I struggle. I resist, though I feel a mounting fascination that becomes more intense each minute. Here I am once more. Rashly, I went to the window where I did what Claramunda wanted. I took the cord, tied a noose, and hung it on the hook. Now... I want to see nothing else except stare at this paper, because if I look, I know what she will do now at the sixth hour of the last day of the week. If I see her, I will have to do what she wants. Have to. I won't see her. I laugh. Loudly, no, I'm not laughing. Something is laughing in me, and I know why. It is because of my I won't. I won't, and yet I know very well that I have to, have to look at her. I must, must, and then all that follows. If I still wait, it is only to prolong this exquisite torture. Yes, that's it. This breathless anguish is my supreme delight. I write quickly, quickly, just so I can continue to sit here, so I can attenuate these seconds of pain. Again, terror, again. I know that I will look toward her, that I will stand up, that I will hang myself. That doesn't frighten me. That is beautiful, even precious. There is something else. What will happen afterwards? I don't know, but since my torment is so delicious, I feel, feel that something horrible must follow. Think, think, write something, anything at all to keep from looking toward her. My name, Richard Bracamont. Richard Bracamont. Richard Bracamont. Richard I can't go on. I must. No, no, must look at her. Richard Bracamont. No, no more. Richard. Richard Brac. The inspector of the Ninth Precinct, after repeated and vain efforts to telephone Richard, arrived at the Hotel Stevens at 6.05. He found the body of the student Richard Bracamont hanging from the crossbar of the window in room number seven, in the same position as each of his three predecessors. The expression on the student's face, however, was different, reflecting an appalling fear. 
Bracamont's eyes were wide open and bulging from their sockets, his lips were drawn into a rictus, and his jaws were clamped together. A huge black spider, whose body was dotted with purple spots, lay crushed and nearly bitten in two between his teeth. On the table there lay the student's journal. The inspector read it and went immediately to investigate the house across the street. What he learned was that the second floor of that building had not been lived in for many months. Paris, 1908 End of the Spider by Hans Heinz Ewers Recorded by Brendan Riley, Chicago, Illinois, Spring 2007The Thing at Ghent. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Thing at Ghent by Honoré de Balzac. A peculiar thing took place at Ghent while I was staying there. A lady ten years a widow lay on her bed, attacked by mortal sickness. The three heirs of collateral lineage were waiting for her last sigh. They did not leave her side, for fear that she would make a will in favor of the convent of begins belonging to the town. The sick woman kept silent. She seemed dozing, and death appeared to overspread very gradually her mute and livid face. Can't you imagine those three relations seated in silence through that winter midnight beside her bed? An old nurse is with them, and she shakes her head, and the doctor sees with anxiety that the sickness has reached its last stage, and holds his hat in one hand, and with the other makes a sign to the relations, as if to say to them, I have no more visits to make here. Amid the solemn silence of the room is heard the dull rustling of a snowstorm which beats upon the shutters. For fear that the eyes of the dying woman might be dazzled by the light, the youngest of the heirs has fitted a shade to the candle which stood near the bed so that the circle of light scarcely reached the pillow of the deathbed, from which the countenance of the sick woman stood out like the figure of Christ imperfectly gilded and fixed upon a cross of tarnished silver. The flickering rays shed by the blue flames of a crackling fire were therefore the sole light of the somber chamber where the denouement of a drama was just ending. A log suddenly rolled from the fire onto the floor, as if presaging some catastrophe. At the sound of it the sick woman quickly rose to a sitting posture. She opened two eyes, clear as those of a cat, and all present eyed her in astonishment. She saw the log advance, and before anyone could check an unexpected movement which seemed prompted by a kind of delirium, she bounded from her bed, seized the tongs, and threw the coal back into the fireplace. The nurse, the doctor, the relations rushed to her assistance. They took the dying woman in their arms. They put her back in bed. She laid upon her pillow, and after a few minutes died, keeping her eye fixed, even after her death, upon that plank in the floor which the burning brand had touched. Scarcely had the Countess Van Ostrom expired when the three co-heirs exchanged looks of suspicion, and thinking no more about their aunt, began to examine the mysterious floor. As they were Belgians, their calculations were as rapid as their glances. An agreement was made by three words uttered in a low voice that none of them should leave the chamber. A servant was sent to fetch a carpenter. Their collateral hearts beat excitedly as they gathered round the treasured flooring and watched their young apprentice give the first blow with his chisel. The plank was cut through. My aunt made a sign, said the youngest of the heirs. No, it was merely the quivering light that made it appear so, replied the eldest, who kept one eye on the treasure and the other on the corpse. 
the afflicted relations discovered exactly on the spot where the brand had fallen a certain object artistically enveloped in a mass of plaster proceed said the eldest of the heirs the chisel of the apprentice then brought to light a human head in some odds and ends of clothing from which they recognized the count whom all the town had believed to have died in java and whose loss had been bitterly deplored by his wife the thing at ghent by honore de balzac <laughs>